You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. For the next half an hour, we're going to be beginning a, a new series uh, on, uh, from the book of 1 Samuel. But I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But to start off with, I just wanted to, to say, for most of you who are part of the church, if you've been around for a while, uh, you probably know that at the moment I'm um, part of my calling and ministry uh, is, it involves researching for a, for a PhD in biblical studies in, in Durham. Um, I just got to the end of the first year of six years, so it's very early doors. Uh, and it's great. I mean, it's quite intense, but it's fun, and I, I, I enjoy it. But one year in, I'm already dreading the tumbleweed question. Do you know what? Can you guess what the tumbleweed question is? What's your, yes, what's your PhD in then? Uh, um, and on one level, it should be really easy to talk about what my PhD is. But the problem is, it's, for, it's in two chapters of Isaiah that for most people are quite obscure. Um, so, so what happens is when I got asked, well, what's your PhD? And I have to think really quickly, but I'm, I'm not always that quick at thinking about an answer. So Al, what's your PhD in? My PhD? Uh, 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 uh. And so the upshot is that there are numerous people around who think that my PhD is in the origins of Neanderthal dialects. Um, because... <laughs> That's all I can do when I start to speak about my PhD. But genuinely, it's fun. Uh, You'll be pleased to hear, therefore, that for the next few weeks, at least while I'm preaching this term, uh, the, the subject matter will arguably be the least obscure uh, Bible story in the whole of Scripture. Now, I would wager that even if this is the very first time that you have set foot inside a church, if you have never, ever, ever been to church before, it's probably fairly likely that at some point in your life you would at least have become vaguely aware of the story of David and Goliath. It would probably ring a bell for you somehow and somewhere. If you are not a Christian, the chances are that you will probably have heard of this story. It would at least ring a bell. If you are in the privileged position of having grown up in and around church or Sunday school or Christian teaching, then the story of David and Goliath will probably be a little bit more familiar to you and perhaps even a little bit passe. Oh, David and Goliath, little bloke, giant sling, boosh, that's it, end of. Over the next few Sundays when I'm preaching this term, I want to open up the story of David and Goliath, not just the story of David and Goliath itself, but I want to unpack 1 Samuel 17, the chapter in which the story of David and Goliath is set. And as we do so, I'm hopeful that we're going to hear fresh the voice of God in and through Scripture, and that we will discern together the heart and the ways of God with some more clarity. And hopefully as we do so, God will excite your heart. We will be transformed in the process of corporately together engaging with the scriptures. So why don't we bow our heads just for a moment and I'll pray before we read and begin to unpack this text. 
Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of being called into communion with you. Father, thank you that you have loved us and chosen us in your Son to be a beloved, holy people. Thank you that you have given us the Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee of our future inheritance, as power to live a good, faithful Christian life in the present. Thank you so much for this salvation life that is God from beginning to end. And we ask, Holy Spirit, as this scripture was breathed out by you and breathed into by you, may you also now breathe out from it and into our hearts as we give attention to this well-known Bible story as scripture for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, let's get into it then. So 1 Samuel 17, if you've got a Bible or a device, you might want to open it, follow along. Otherwise, the words will just come up on the screen. Okay. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekar in Ephes Damim. Saul and the Israelites gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and formed ranks against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So what's happening then? These first few verses, easy to scoot through those, quickly get to the action. But this is important because the storyteller or narrator has decided that this matters. This is important. And so what we get then is this almost cinematic feel about the introduction to the story. The narrator zooms in first on geographical details, but also political details. The Philistines are the ancient enemies of the Israelites. They inhabited the coast to the west, southwest coast of Israel. And they were possibly even people who had come across from Crete. That was perhaps where their origins were, a seafaring people. But they were the perennial enemies of ancient Israel. And now they have encroached into Judah, the southern part of Israelite territory. They have turned up and encamped just 14 miles west of Jerusalem between Soko and the fortress that was Azekar. And here you go. John, beat this. You can see this one, which is a help. Um, <laughs> uh, so here's the, there's Azekar, the fortress, at the top left of the screen. There's Soko down at the bottom there. And here is, well, the, the, the person who's put this map together has guessed that the Philistines were one side and the Israelites were the other side. So look, the beginning of this text is almost like this. It's looking down. It's almost like looking at a map. Look, there, they were there. They came from there to there, and it was there, and that's what happened. But then there's a shift. There's a bit of a shift because did you notice that the, the, the narrator says that the Philistines were on one side on a mountain, and the Israelites were on the other. It's like, you lot over there are the Philistines. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, you know, you've got Goliath of Gath sitting in the front. Um, and then you guys are the, the, the Israelites. And so what you've got is almost a, suddenly a panoramic view. You've got the looking down at the details. Oh, it was there and there, between there and there. And then suddenly, woof. And it's almost like a, it's almost a precursor to how films are made, isn't it? 
Sometimes films are like that. You get a sort of zoom in, but then you get this sweet back and you see a big picture all of a sudden. Now, I think that there's something really interesting in this in terms of how you interpret a Bible story. Because just as the, author, just as the storyteller here is laying out two perspectives on the scene, it might be that there are more than one it's more than one way that we can understand what is happening in this story. It might be that there are multiple angles with which we might read, view, understand the story that he is about to tell us. Keep that in mind, because it could prove to be, could, spoiler, will, prove to be a helpful thing as we work through the story together in the coming months. We move on to the next few verses. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armored with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had greaves of bronze on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Everything about Goliath is intended to intimidate. The Hebrew text of 1 Samuel 17 puts Goliath's height at nine feet nine inches. Okay? There are other sources that have Goliath's height at six feet nine inches. Was he nine foot nine or six foot nine? Doesn't really actually matter. The point is, he is a freakishly big bloke. And that's the point. I mean, even if we go with the conservative estimate that Goliath was six foot nine, we are still talking Tyson Fury. He's six foot nine. I mean, look at the size that bloke next to him is probably about six foot two. Six foot nine. He's in, and for the ancient world, that's impossibly big. I mean, in today's world, it's like flipping heck. Did your mum feed you steak? Now, it's in the ancient world, wow, it really is remarkable. Goliath, as the narrator tells it, is armed to the teeth. But the narrator strangely makes much, much more of Goliath's armor. His chainmail coat alone weighs in excess of 125 pounds. And the overwhelming picture is of a warrior who is an immovable foe. The storyteller hones in on the details of his armor. Now, part of the skill of the storyteller in 1 Samuel is that he takes you right there. I mean, when you read this story, if you really enter in, it's like you could basically, it's almost like the scene has frozen, and there you are, and you can, you can feel the filed edges of the chainmail. You can feel the warm, smooth shaft of the spear as it's been worn by countless bloody conflicts. 
It's visceral. It's visual. It takes you right into it. It's intended to bring you into the action. So you're going, oh, scary bloke. The sheer size, armor, and weaponry of Goliath are intimidating. They are supposed to intimidate the people of Israel. And it only gets worse when Goliath opens his mouth to speak. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay, on one level, Goliath's speech is the standard kind of thing that you would perhaps expect to hear in a warfare setting like that. Okay? Goliath is the representative of the Philistines, and he calls out the Israelites, come on then, send a man, let's get it on. It's kind of wartime battlefield rhetoric. It's almost like military equivalent of football fans saying, who are you? Who are you? There we go. If you see yourself in there, keep quiet, because that'd be really embarrassing, especially if you're offering a rude gesture up. But on another level, Goliath's words almost function like some kind of ancient realpolitik, the pragmatic expression of power politics. His presence represents military strength and technological sophistication employed on the battlefield. Shock and awe tactics. He had it down before the US of A managed to, you know, to coin the term. Goliath was doing it already. Nevertheless, despite the chanting and the rhetoric and all the size of Goliath and his technological sophistication and the military might of it all, remember that it's the words, it's what he said that left Saul and the army dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, when it comes to speech in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, of course it's important, but first speech is more important still. Okay? The first words that a biblical character utter are supposed to tell you quite a lot about what sort of person this is or what the agenda might be. And so we're going to examine Goliath's words in a little bit more detail because there is actually more happening than meets the eye. First of all, we're going to look at serving and servants in the speech of Goliath. Oops, turn the page. Goliath uses this language of serving and servants. He says, uh, if you go to the second line, am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves, let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now, we can take Goliath's words on face value. We can just take them in their plain sense, if you like, as literally just meaning, well, you're Saul's people and I'm one of the Philistines. Send a chap out and we'll settle it that way. And that would be very well, that's fine. But are there other ways that we could understand the notion of serving and servants that are not primarily social or political? What if we brought into the conversation a significant verse from Israel's scriptures from the book of Deuteronomy? I'll give you Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. The Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve. And by his name alone you shall swear. Now I know that's only one verse, but the language of servants and serving in Deuteronomy and in Israel's history and story is much more programmatic, if you like. It has serious chunk and significance because the point is that Israel have an identity and they have a God and the God whom they worship is the God from whom they draw that identity. The people of Israel are God's people and they exist as God's people to serve him. And the Hebrew word there for serve is one of the words that is regularly used to express worship. God's people are gods, and they are there to serve or worship him. And so Goliath's speech can be heard as a full frontal theological attack on the identity of Israel as the people of God as worshippers of God. In fact, in many ways, it's almost a six-foot, nine-inch, full-frontal version of the words of the serpent in the garden. Has God really said? Goliath almost stands as a challenge. Are you really gods? Are you servants of God, or are you servants of Saul? You will be our servants, There's so much going on here that is much deeper than just social or political. So how can we as 21st century Western Christians who are a million miles away culturally from this story, how do we interpret this idea? Well, perhaps the story speaks to our tendency to forget the theological nature of our identity as the people of God. It tends to be the first thing that flies out of the window when the heat is on. We forget about theology and it all becomes about social answers to social problems. And we forget that our whole identity and existence is marked out by God and through God and with reference to God. Therefore, everything about the church's life and existence is theological, like it or not. We are all theologians in a sense. The difference is, are you a good one or a shockingly bad one? (laughs) There is room in between, by the way. It's not quite that binary, but you know. In the face of social and political upheaval, 
Do we, as the people of God, stand firm and say, the Lord our God we shall fear, him we shall serve, and by his name alone we shall swear? Or do we resort to fear and dismay? Do we cave in to intimidation, threats, whether real or imagined, and public opinion? Go, David. <laughs> now, with all due respect and appropriate reverence to His Majesty Charles III, I, for one, shall not be pledging my devotion to him, as our new Prime Minister urged in her speech the other day. I'll recognize the King, but my devotion is certainly not to King Charles III. My allegiance is to another king who is alive and who will not be replaced ever. The point for us, friends, is that when the chips are down and when the pressure is on, when the people of God are faced with enormous life-shaking realities, will we hold our nerve or will we capitulate to things that we see and hear? Will we hold our confession or will we crumble? Goliath's speech to the Israelites poses very awkward questions for the people of God. I think that fear and dismay in Saul and his Israelite armies are symptoms of a people who have forgotten God. Oh, I, I don't mean they've forgotten about God. And I don't think you've forgotten about God either. But you might have forgotten God in the sense of forgetting who on earth it is that you are in relation to him. The forgetfulness of the Israelites wasn't amnesia. They'd chosen to go it alone. And fear and dismay were the upshot. Let me ask you, are you a Christian who spends most of his or her time quaking in your boots about life? Have you forgotten God? Have you got a notional idea of a God who's somewhere out there drifting around, who maybe now and again intervenes with goodies? Or do you have a sense that I am part of the people of God? I have been called and adopted, chosen, made to be a part of a holy people. My life is defined by him and the worship of him, and I stand firm in that. Because the minute you drift from that into, oh yes, God, but life. You know, oh, there's God and church, and Christianity, oh, but, but life, but work, but, but family, but money, bills. No. The minute you drift away from God, it's him who defines all of my existence. Fear and dismay begin to encroach in your life. And it can happen imperceptibly. One day you may wake up and find yourself a nervous wreck because you have drifted away. You've never forgotten about God You've just forgotten God. You failed to actually stand firm in the confession that no, no, no. No matter what happens, he's God. I'm his servant. I exist for him and through him. We're going to touch on how it came to be like this for the Israelites as we think about King Saul in the speech of Goliath now. 
There is, throughout this chapter in 1 Samuel, a profound irony, like something deeply, deeply ironic. And it only makes sense in the context of 1 Samuel as a whole. If you only had 1 Samuel 17, you only had this chapter of Scripture, you could clean lots from it. And you could maybe take some punts at things, and you might be right. But it only really, truly makes sense within the whole of the book in which it has been set. And the irony has to do with King Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And he became king because the Israelites rejected God from being their king and asked for a human king instead. And if you know the story at all, you will know that they wanted a king because they wanted to be just like all the other nations around them. Oh. <laughs> the prophet Samuel did not like this one little bit. Samuel was the prophet who led the people. He wasn't the king, but he, he was the sort of, he represented Israel and the prophet, the relationship between prophet and people. It's like Moses and Israel, Samuel and people. God speaks, the people respond. There's this sense of sharing and communion. And the people want a king because they want someone to stand in between and do the stuff for them. It's a rejection of God. Samuel didn't like it, but God decided to give the people what they wanted except with a warning. The warning was that the king would basically take stuff. You can find it in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, actually, if you want to look it up later. But read through 1 Samuel 8. The, the king would take sons to be soldiers. The king would take daughters as servants. The king would take land and livestock. It's this whole list he will take, and 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 he will take. And in that day, Samuel told the Israelites, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel desperately tries to persuade them not to go there, but the Israelites say, no. <laughs> I like to hear them say, no. But we are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. You will cry out to the Lord because of the king whom you have chosen for yourselves. What does Goliath say when he shouts to the people? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And herein lies the world-shakingly enormous chunk of significance and irony that as Goliath shouts that challenge, the man whom Israel chose for themselves is standing right there with the soldiers, cowering in fear and dismay. They'd made their choice, and it was not 
going well. To add to the sense of irony, one of Saul's standout features is his height. On the day when Saul was appointed or proclaimed king, the storyteller makes this observation. When he took his stand among the people, he was head and shoulders taller than any of them. Now, I don't know exactly how tall Saul was to begin with, but honestly, being head and shoulders taller than any of the other Israelites is going to bring him head and shoulders nearer to the height of Goliath than any else of them, right? So what a terrific, crushing, ironic moment in the text when the champion, the giant, appears, calling out and challenging and undermining the theological identity and purpose of the people of God, that he calls for the chosen one, and the chosen one is not up to the task. Irony. Desperate, crushing irony. If anyone should have been striding out to face Goliath that day, it was Saul. But there he was, cowering in fear and dismay with the rest of his people. Listen, we are God's people, called in Christ Jesus to love and to serve him. We don't get to choose a king for ourselves. We have been given one, the Messiah Jesus, the eternal king, God's king. He will rule from coast to coast. Every knee will bow down and proclaim that he alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All creation will proclaim that he alone is Messiah. And Lord. And so, as we face up to social and political pressures as a church, we must recognize that those things are ultimately theological because we derive our identity from God and in relation to Him. And that's where it comes from. And at a time when many around us are desperate for something or somebody to steady the ship, to bring some clarity some focus, how important might it be for us to hold our nerve, to stand firm and to cling to God and to our call to serve him? It's the ongoing temptation for God's people, actually, to lose their nerve and to look to human power and wisdom to replace God's. It's essentially what you do every time you slip up and sin in some ways, It's a a falling away from dependence on God, taking things into your own hands, or looking to another person, a relationship, a boss, or whatever. Finding something outside of God to give you a sense of purpose and strength and meaning. And Jesus warns you can't have two masters because you'll love one and hate the other one. And so perhaps, friends, this morning we need to hear from God and receive it deep in our hearts that the fear and dismay that we experience can be a result of turning away from God. And that should be a warning, therefore, don't slacken your confession. Hold firm to him. 
He is God. We will fear him. We will serve him and him alone. And perhaps also in the light of Saul as the humanly chosen king who failed catastrophically to be all that the people who chose him wanted him to be. Perhaps the sober warning for us at this time and season in our lives, nationally and all the rest of it, is to be careful what you wish for. Because God might actually give it to you. And then when you receive it, it might not actually turn out to be quite what you thought it would be. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you have been proclaimed as king. Thank you that you were crowned at Calvary. You were declared to be king and you have also been proclaimed as son of God with power by your resurrection from the dead. Thank you, you are the king who conquers every foe every enemy. Jesus, we honor you as the king who did not shrink back in fear and dismay, but who walked the lonely path to Calvary, who scorned the shame and endured the cross. We worship you, King Jesus. Have mercy on us. Forgive us where we forget you, even while not forgetting about you. Forgive us when we rely on human wisdom. Forgive us when we stupidly turn to people to be what only you can be for us. Forgive us. Lord, it's an offense to you. It's not just inconvenient. You hate it. God, we're your covenant people. Receive us as that again today. Lord, shape our hearts that we might stand firm. And in the face of pressure and intimidation, say no but we will fear and serve the Lord and him alone. Please help us to do that, we ask. God, may we not long for the kinds of things that our fragile, insecure, desperate, and fearful world longs for. May we long for you, and may we as your people, even as we said at the beginning of this meeting, may we, with your help, make you known in our world. Starting from the moment we leave this building, we pray. In the name of our great and glorious King we ask. Amen.